How's everybody today? Good, good. I need you all to do me a favor. We've got a lot of people over here in the overflow room. It's where people go when we run out of room, and I need you to give them a big cheer so they can hear it all the way over there. Let's cheer. Welcome them. Yeah. All right, we welcome you who are over there. And then I need to do one more thing. We've got a bunch of people out in the lobby also watching out there. So would you give them a cheer so they can hear it too, would you? Yeah. Well, welcome. Yeah, we are running out of space. That's pretty obvious. But uh, good thing we're building another campus, right? Amen. All right. It is coming. Hey, before we go to the Word today, I want to introduce you to somebody. Kyle, come on up here with your family. As they're coming up here, um, how many of you got my email that got, went out yesterday? All right. How many didn't? <laughs> Nobody wants to admit it. If you're not, you can get on that email list very easily. Just sign up through the app, and we try to keep everybody communicated with. So come on up, you guys. Spread on out here. Let me get this out of the way. All right. We get everybody up here? Okay. So if you got the letter yesterday, you know that this is Kyle, Kyle Couillard. And, um, and uh, when, we when we decided to launch a second campus and go multi-site, we always knew that um, we were going to have to increase our staff somewhat to accommodate some of the needs, the specialized needs that we're going to have. We always knew that we were going to look for another person to come alongside John as another worship pastor here at the church. And uh, just through the grace of God, and I won't unpack the whole story for you now, but uh, God has led us to that person, and this is Kyle right here. So I wanted to, well, give him a round of welcome. And, um, and, uh, this is his wife, Renee, and I'm going to let him introduce his children. Yeah. Who else is on stage here? So, uh, Thank you guys so much. It's, I just want to say it's an honor. Um, one of the things that striked us is that it, it felt so much like a family, just walking into the lobby for the first time. And uh, we attended the, the church picnic, which was amazing. Um, no one knew that this would happen. I didn't even know that this would happen, but God knew, and God's brought us here. And so we're so grateful. I just want to thank all of you and Pastor Joe and the staff. Um, so we got my wife, Renee. <laughs> uh, this is our son, Oliver. Uh, this is Lydia, my daughter. Adeline, my daughter. Bradley, son. Melody. And uh, Claire on the end there. And we didn't plan this, but my mom's visiting this weekend. So this is perfect. <laughs> this is my mom, Yvette. Thank you so much. Awesome. I'm going to pray for you. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, we just thank you for just the way that you've orchestrated this. Lord, only you could have done it. And Lord, I, I look forward to Kyle and his family sharing their story in the weeks and months ahead and um, of just how you worked in their lives and how you connected their family to our church family. But Lord, I just pray a blessing over their family. I pray, God, that, that uh, as he joins this marvelous team here at New Life, and specifically the way he'll lead um, here and in our other campus, Lord, I just pray, God, that you'll just bless him, give him wisdom. Lord, uh, just pray for protection over their family. And we just thank you, Lord, how you're bringing the pieces together um, for this great movement that's happening in our community. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Welcome, guys. Welcome. All right. Well, we are still figuring out a lot of stuff about how to manage and lead two campuses, and Kyle's going to be a big part of that when it comes to the worship and tech ministry here. So um, get to know him and uh, spend some time with that family. 
Hey, for the uh, past two weekends, we have been um, in Exodus 16 and 17. So if you would open your Bibles to Exodus 17 again, and, um, and, and that's where we're going to be. And, um, and if I didn't make it clear, Kyle is coming on board as our uh, worship, uh, associate worship pastor. Okay, I didn't give the exact title, but that's his exact title. And, um, and he'll be, like I said, uh, side by side with John for many things moving forward. Um, but if you got Exodus 17, that's where we're going to be today. And where we've been studying is we've been watching the Israelites and learning all about their wanderings through the wilderness after they left Egypt. And what is obvious to anyone who has read these two chapters of the Bible is this, that these Israelites still have a lot to learn. They've got a lot of growing to do before they are ready to become this mighty nation that God has always envisioned for them to become. And God has used this wilderness experience so far to test these Israelites. In fact, the Bible even says it. God was putting them to the test. How did God test them? His test was very basic. He tested them with water and with food. They needed food and they needed water, but they didn't have any means to get it. And there lays the groundwork for the test. How would they respond to that level of adversity? Who would they turn to in their time of need? Well, God was always gonna provide for them and we've seen him provide for them already in amazing ways since crossing the Red Sea. God made uh, bitter water pure. He brought in quail for meat, you might remember. Um, he rained down heaven's bread, manna from heaven every day for them. And last week we saw how he made a river of water come out of a rock and create a river through the desert. So God has provided for them and he was always gonna provide for them. But at every one of these tests, the Israelites had an opportunity to trust the Lord. But what did they do instead time and time again? They grumbled. They complained. They would go to Moses like, why'd you bring us out here to die? What are you doing to us? And, and it got so bad that even Moses went to God and he's like, like, what am I gonna do with these people? And then Moses tells the Israelites, why are you putting God to the test? There was a lot of this happening out in the wilderness. But even though the Israelites' response to these tests were less than stellar, I would say, they were designed to bring out their very best, to point them towards God in every situation so they would learn to depend on him and him alone. And that was the whole point. That was the whole application. Even, even Moses said so. Fast forward 40 years and Moses is, is about to turn over leadership and the Israelites are gonna go into the promised land and he reminds them of these tests. Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse two, he says, remember, how the Lord, your God, led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna. Now, this is food neither you nor your ancestors had known. Why did he do it? To teach you. Do you see that in the text? To teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So one way or another, these, these Israelites are gonna have to learn to trust God. And I would say it this way, it is no different for you and me today either. What does it look like for you and me to walk every day with our Savior? What does that look like? To live your life in such a way that you trust him in everything that you do. What does that look like? What kind of life is that? It's the same kind of lesson that the Lord was teaching the Israelites. It's the lessons we learn every single day as we journey through this world as well. 
What does it look like when, when the path before you seems uncertain? Who are you gonna trust in those days, in those moments? When you are in a season where you find yourself frozen by indecision and you don't know what to do, who, who do you turn to? Who do you look to? Who do you cry out to in those moments? What do you do when it feels like the entire world is closing in around you? How do you respond to those moments? Who do you look to? Who do you trust? Who do you depend on? When everybody on this planet has let you down, or when your best laid plans absolutely fall apart, or when life just does no longer, doesn't seem to any longer make any sense whatsoever, who are you in those moments? Those moments of great testing and trial. Who do you turn to? Can you find success when the Israelites found nothing but failure? You can. And it begins with who you trust. Will you trust the Lord and give him glory in the very best times of your life and in the very worst times of your life? In other words, whether it's going great or whether it's going bad, who you look to and who you depend on changes never. What does that look like? This is what these tests were meant to draw out of these Israelites. And it's what these tests and these hard times and difficult situations pull out of us today as well. Now, as we move forward in the text today, we're gonna see that um, they've been tested with food, they've been tested with water, but the testing is not over. Now, they are gonna be tested in battle. So you got 17 verse eight open. Let's start reading together. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Now, how do you like that? As if their life wasn't hard enough already, right? They, they've had to struggle in these early days of the wandering, and, and now they have to defend themselves from, an inv from these Amalekite invaders. Now, the Bible doesn't say that God sent the Amalekites to attack them. In fact, the Bible says we, later in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, Moses is gonna talk about this moment and he's gonna say, hey, do you guys remember when the Amalekites came after we crossed the Red Sea? And he gives us a little detail. And they attacked us from the rear where all the stragglers and slow pokes were at. You know, that's, he doesn't say slow pokes, but that's my interpretation. He goes, you remember that? That's this moment. Now, God didn't send the Amalekites, but I can promise you this, God was not surprised by them. God's not surprised by anything. And God is gonna allow this opportunity, this moment of surprise attack on the Israelites to be another opportunity for the Israelites to prove that you can trust me as your Lord and I will provide for you and I will take care of you. So this is very much a physical battle and it's a and it's actually a test that they're gonna come under. Now, before we unpack this battle together, let's ask this basic question, because some of you are probably wondering, who in the world are the Amalekites? Never heard of them before. Who are the Amalekites? Well, specifically, they were the descendants of Jacob's brother Esau from the book of Genesis. Now, without unpacking the entire book of Genesis again, you know that God promised Abraham to make a mighty nation out of him. He had a son named Isaac. Isaac had two twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Is this coming back to you just a little bit? Um, uh, Jacob was kind of a trickster and a conniver, and, and what did he do? He tricked his brother Esau out of the birthright over a bowl of stew, remember? Later, he would trick his own father into giving him the blessing that was supposed to go to Esau. It was like an irrevocable blessing that he stole from his brother out of trickery. 
And when Esau found out about it, do you remember what Esau said? I am going to kill my brother. But not like two brothers that say that to each other all the time. No, he really meant it. I'm gonna kill my brother, Jacob. Well, Jacob's descendants wound up in Egypt and they grew large and his descendants cried out to God and God sent Moses and that's who we're studying about to now. His descendants went on to be the Israelites. Esau's descendants, you know, he was known as an Edomite and out of him he had a grandson, it's a little confusing, named Amalek who would go on to be the father of the Amalekites and so these are descendants of Esau and here we are all over again. Even though Esau forgave Jacob, Esau didn't walk with God like his brother was trying to do and neither did his children and all of his descendants. In fact, if you look in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16, there's this teaching to the church and listen to what it says. See that no one is sexual, sexual, sexually immoral or is godless like Esau. How do you like that as a description? Man, if your name was in the Bible, would you like to be known as the godless one? I wouldn't. That's how Esau is known. And then it says this descriptive verse, for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. So, not a flattering description of Esau at all. But like I said, Esau did forgive Jacob, but like I said, he didn't live for the Lord or strive to like Jacob did, but he did forgive him. But his descendants went on to become the Amalekites and they would attack the Israelites in their wilderness wanderings. And it's almost like these two brothers are at it again. That's who these Amalekites were. Where did this attack happen? This attack happened at Rephidim. Now this is the same place that the Israelites came to and they had no water and they complained and Moses struck the rock and booshed a big uh, massive amount of water. So this is that same area. So while they are there, that's when this attack happens. Now here's how it goes down. Look at verse nine. Moses said to Joshua, can some, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Hur, H-U-R, not Hur, H-E-R, like some random person went up there with him. No, that was his name, Hur. What's your name? My name is Hur. No, what's your name? It's a little confusing, in our times anyway. Anyway, just saying. Just need to be clear. H-U-R, not H-E-R. Don't get me started, because you know where I can take this. <laughs> Her pronouns are he, him. No, I'm kidding, I'm just joking. I'm joking. <laughs> Don't get me started, I'm joking. So Moses goes on top of the hill with Aaron and a guy named Her, and um, they went to the top of the hill. Now this is the very first time in the whole Bible that we read the word Joshua. Uh, it's certainly not the last time we're gonna read Joshua. In fact, his name will be mentioned over 200 more times in the Bible. And in fact, um, he's gonna become such a prominent leader of the Israelites that one of the books of the Bible will actually be named after him, the sixth book of the Bible. So you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Joshua. Moses saw something in this young man, Joshua, that caught his eye. I'm assuming he saw something very special. He saw a natural leader. He saw a fighter. He saw a military man. 
um, Joshua would be the guy 40 years in the future who would actually take Moses' place and become the new leader of the Israelites. He would be the one that leads the Israelites across the Jordan River to take possession of the promised land and uh, do mighty things for God. He's one of the most impressive people you'll meet in the Bible. But that is down the road, and that is part of a different sermon series, and you are welcome to go ahead and read all about it. I'd highly encourage you. So they're gonna fight, and Joshua is going to lead some men into battle. And while he's doing that, Moses is going to go to a top of the hill and watch it. But let me just tell you, he's gonna be doing a whole lot more than just simply watching the battle. The Bible says he's gonna be holding in his hands the staff of God. What happens every time that staff of God is in Moses' hands? Something pretty amazing happens. And so it had to have been some kind of encouragement for, and he said, listen, you go down there with your swords and shields. I'm going up there with a staff of God. And I wonder if Joshua is just somewhere going, yeah, we're good. He's got that staff in his hands. We're good. So they go fight. And it says in verse 11, as long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. Now, how do you like that? This is a back and forth battle. It's not completely one-sided at this moment. They're, there's, they're back and forth. Sometimes Josh is winning. Sometimes the Amalekites are winning. And the common denominator here, the, the, the key is, as long as Moses had his hands in the air with the staff of God, they were winning. But whenever Moses lowered his hands, they were losing. Now, I don't know if God told Moses that ahead of time or he figured it out up on the hill. I don't know. My assumption is God told him ahead of time, but I don't know that for sure, but it doesn't make me wonder if God, or if he had to figure that out in the moment. I mean, what, what was that like? Maybe he's up on the hill and he's like, let the battle begin. I don't know. We're doing good. Look, 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 look over there. Oh, I knew they could do it. I think we got it. I think we got it. Aaron, her, I think we got it. No, they're losing. Who's losing? No, Josh is over there? No, okay, now he's winning again. How about over here? Oh, no, okay, we're good, we're good. I think we're good, guys. Thank you, Lord, we're good. All right, we're, we're good. Whew. No, they're losing. Who, who's losing? Over here? They're lo I don't know. I don't know how it went down. Somehow, though, they, they got a correlation that as long as Moses' arms were up and the staff of God was raised high, they were winning. And this was either revealed to them by God or it was a very important discovery that they made. And this battle went on all day. How in the world could anybody keep their hands up all day long? I couldn't. This wasn't a five-minute battle. This went on all day. How did he do it? Verse 12. When Moses' hands grew tired... They took a stone, who are they? Aaron and her. They took the stone and they put it under him and he sat on it. Aaron and her held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. How did Moses do it? How did he keep his hands up? Simple, he had help. He had help. Aaron and her made sure that Moses was supported. 
And they grabbed his arms. Guy got on each side of him. They wrapped him up and they held it up. And all three of them did this thing together. Now, for whatever reason, God made the decision in his infinite wisdom that this time the Israelites are gonna have to draw swords and they're gonna have to get their shields out and they're gonna have to physically fight these Amalekites, which if you recall, was completely different from the last time they faced an invading army. What happened the last time they faced an invading army? They stood on the shores and watched God do everything. They didn't have to do anything. They watched these poor souls ride right through the Red Sea and God deluged them leaving none alive. And they spent three days celebrating the Lord on the shore of the Red Sea. They didn't have to do a thing. But not this time. Not this time. God's like, you're gonna fight. Now we know that God wants to show them something else. He's testing them. He's, he's showing them, you can trust me and I will fight for you. But this time you're gonna have to fight. So Israel used physical weapons led by Joshua. And at the same time, Israel used spiritual weapons led by Moses. And what is plainly obvious to anybody who's paying attention to when we're reading this is that this was absolutely a demonstration by God that uh, the Israelites, Moses, Aaron, Hur, everybody was completely dependent on God for the victory. That's the whole thing here. What is plainly obvious, they were completely dependent on God for the victory. It's the only reason they won the battle. It, they did not win it because they were superior fighters, which is obvious that every time Moses let his hands down, they started getting whooped. But when Moses' hands were up, that's when they got the victory. It was the very presence of God represented in that staff, in Moses' hands, on that hill. That is the reason for why they won. And I look at this picture here, and I don't know what it does for you, but it greatly encourages me. Like, wow, they did it together. God did it, and they came together. And I look at this picture, and I think about that moment, and I can't help but also think about our reality today as Christians. We are in a battle too, and I hope you realize that, friends. We're in a battle every day, and it's very much a spiritual battle. And we have no staff of God to hold up in our own hands, but I can tell you, we do have and we do hold up God's word with both hands and with all of our hearts. We hold up his promises by living out our lives in a holy way and obeying his word. Everything that we need in this life can be found um, in the Bible. Everything we need to live a holy, God-honoring life. And so we as a church family, we as Christians, we hold up God's word very high. And friends, we are under constant attack. And, and you and I are, are constantly being burdened and challenged and bombarded to abandon what God's word says. But we don't because we have an obligation to obey his word and to keep it raised very high. And I am under this great conviction as your pastor that as we as a new life family, as long as we keep holding God's word high and keep honoring him and glorifying him in everything and stay true to his purposes, we will ultimately win this battle through the power of Jesus Christ, his Holy Spirit in our lives as it rages all around us. We will not fail in this if we keep his word and him in the right spot. 
Now, friends, I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of churches, and I don't want to dog other churches, but there's a lot of pastors, there's a lot of churches, more and more, I hate to say, that seem to have just gone off the rails, so to speak. And there is a common denominator in every single um, situation example I can think of. They have taken the word of God, which they used to hold up high, way up here like Moses and the staff of God, and they have brought it way down here. And they no longer follow it. And they've tried to merge biblical standard with American secularism, and it does not work. So friends, this is what we're gonna do. It was the reason the Israelites won that day, and it's the reason we will as well. We're in a spiritual battle, and what I find interesting is that when the Israelites were in slaves in Egypt, we don't read of one battle they ever fought. For several hundred years, they didn't fight a battle that we know about. It wasn't until after they had been rescued, after they had been delivered, did they find out that they actually had enemies. And the same way with you and me, you know that's how it works, don't you? Back before you knew Jesus, back when you were living in what the Bible says as a slave to sin, you weren't fighting the devil back then. You were on his team. And then one day, you saw the light. And you chose faith in Jesus. You became what the New Testament calls a new creation in Christ. Where the old is gone and the new is come. You have been converted, if you will, saved by the blood of the lamb and the power of his resurrection. And you became a brand new person. And all of a sudden, your eyes were opened that the enemies of Christ are now your enemies too. In fact, the New Testament alerts us to this often. Ephesians 6 is probably the most famous one. Ephesians 6.10 says, Be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. I think it's a, it's a very understudied verse. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. In other words, people. Our struggle is not against people. Your struggle, ultimately, is not against anybody in this room. It's not anybody in this country. It's not anybody in politics. not anybody across. That's not our struggle, friends, as Christians. Our struggle is this instead. The rulers, the authorities, and the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This is very much a spiritual battle. And let me tell you something. There are times, many times, we need our brothers and sisters in Christ, so to speak, to come around us, hold up our arms when we don't have the strength to do it ourselves. And I would tell you this, if Moses needed a guy named Aaron and her, as spiritual and strong as Moses is, if he needed those two guys to come alongside of him and hold his arms up, don't you think it's completely reasonable that we as Christians today need an Aaron and a her in our lives to hold our arms up from time to time when we can't do it ourselves? Amen. I would say it's true, we do. Because we're in this battle together. Did you know that you, that you right now can be an Aaron or a her to anybody in this room. You might be saying, how in the world do I come around somebody and hold them up? How, how does this look like in my life? How does that work? 
Well, again, the New Testament tells us how it works. I'll share with you just a couple of verses. Hebrews chapter three, verse 13 says this. Encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So this, again, is an acknowledgement that we are in a spiritual battle. So as a result of that, what do we do? Each and every day as we are holding up the word of God high, we're trying to live for him and trust him in everything. We are gonna do that, but at the same time, Every time we do, the more we do, the enemy is there trying to kick our legs out from under us. So, it takes, if you take daily encouragement as a follower of Jesus seriously, then the Lord may very well be putting you in a position of an Aaron and a Her for somebody else in this church family. These were the encouragers to Moses in that hill by helping him keep his arms up and you can function in the very same ministry. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 24 says, let us consider, let us think about, let us dwell on and think through how to do it. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Again, how are we gonna be like an Aaron and a Her in this church? By intentionally taking on the role of an encourager. And some of you right now are going, I'm not exactly sure what my place is in this church. I don't know what God wants me to do. I can tell you what you can do. Every last one of us, you can be an encourager, you can be an Aaron and you can be a Her every single day. It's one of the reasons for why I will always encourage you and challenge you to not miss church and make it a priority because we need to be together. Some of you need to be here today so bad you don't even know how bad you need and you're gonna know it once you leave because you're gonna be encouraged in like ways you can't be encouraged any other way. You need to be surrounded by errands and hers on a weekly basis. I would say as if Moses needed it, We needed it. So I'll always challenge you not to miss church. I won't make any apologies for it. I'm always gonna challenge you to be a part of a life group. We need to be in a life group. Um, I'm gonna always challenge you to be with other people. If you don't know what a life group is, that is a smaller group of people from this church that you meet with on a regular basis, weekly basis, you study God's word, you pray together, you encourage one another, you do this a lot. I'm gonna challenge you to join a Bible study perhaps. Maybe you say, I don't know if a life group's for me. We got Bible studies. We've got a very active men's and women's ministry. I think my fear is most of the men and most of the women in this church are not aware of what's happening in our church or those two ministries. There's Bible studies, support groups, there's gatherings, there's, well, for the men anyways, plenty of food. There's, um, you know, there's all kinds of stuff. Behind all of that is what? We need this. You need that. So life groups, Bible studies, our men and women's ministries. We have a very active and growing primetime ministry for it's geared more to those in the retirement and up uh, age category. 
We've got other ministries too. There's serving teams to be on. Friends, we need to get plugged in, in this church or even outside this church. You gotta plug in with the other Aaron and hers in this world, or you are one of them for somebody else. This is how it all comes together. And I pray, and I pray hard that there'll be a day when not one person who calls themselves a part of this new life family does not have an Aaron and a her in their life. How incredible would it be if every last one of you had two guys or two gals like that for you? It'd be awesome. And I pray for that reality to be true one day. So it's a wonderful picture of the church, spiritual battle. And please hear me. This is not a battle that we fight with swords and shields, not the traditional weapons of war. This is spiritual war and we get the victory through Jesus. So just like with the Israelites, it wasn't because they were strong fighters. It's because we have a strong God. That's why. Look at verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. So Moses is keeping a record. In fact, um, this is where we get one of these references where God says, write this down, write this down, don't forget this. And you wonder, why do we have such a detailed account from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua? Why is that so specific? It's because Moses wrote it all down and he was guided along by the Holy Spirit. So this is one of those things that he wrote down. In it, we learned this, that the Amalekites one day will be wiped off the face of the earth. And as you read through the Old Testament, you're gonna see battles between the Amalekites and the Israelites in the future. And what God says here comes true. The Amalekites will ultimately be wiped off the face of the earth. And God says something to Moses that's very specific. Make sure that Joshua sees what you are writing. Now, why would God want Joshua to pay so much attention to this battle and to basically memorize, I think, the text of what Moses is writing? He's doing that because of Joshua's future. Joshua is in preparation mode for what is to come. And this is the first of many battles that Joshua is gonna be fighting as an Israelite. And this sets the stage for how they're gonna gain victory for the rest of their wanderings and into the promised land. You raise up God high, you depend on him, you do what he says, you move when he says move, you don't move when he says don't move. And as long as you follow that simple formula, you are gonna cruise to victory every time. So Joshua, check it out. See how you won? God gave it to you. That's the formula. Don't mess it up. It's important for Joshua to know. I imagine that Joshua had a uh, pocket version of this battle that he kept around with him in his pocket, not to ever forget. There's finally, there's one last thing that Moses did before we're ready to leave this chapter. In Exodus 17, verse 15, when it was all said and done, Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. The Lord is my banner. That's what he named this altar. He said, because hands were lifted against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Moses builds an altar. But this altar doesn't seem like it was built for sacrifices. No, this altar was built for honoring I would say this altar was more like a monument. Moses did not build a monument to himself. It's not like he built something and said, this monument is to honor my great achievement of keeping my hands up all day. <laughs> it's not that. And it's not a, a, a monument that praising the victorious leadership of Joshua. 
It's not a monument for that. And it's not even a monument recognizing the Israelites' first victory in battle. No, not at all. This monument was about God. And so he says, the Lord is my banner. That's what I call this spot. That's what I call this collection of stones. The Lord is my banner. And I love that phrase, the Lord is my banner. If you dig into the Hebrew language just a little bit, which is what I know most of you do on a Friday night just for fun, but um, as you dig into a little bit of the Hebrew language and you understand this phrase, the Lord is my banner, specifically that word banner, that word holds this idea of a standard. So you could say the Lord is my standard. It's the same kind of word when you talk about a signal pole. So the Lord is my standard. The Lord is my signal pole. And that signal pole, if you will, we see this from time to time through the Old Testament in history. A, a signal pole, a banner, would often be a rallying point for the people. So this, the Lord is my standard. It's, he's my signal pole. He says, the Lord is my banner. On these signal poles, you would fly a flag, if you will, or a banner, if you will. And this banner recognized these people belong to this, or there's an emblem or a logo or, or whatever, but it was raised up high as a signal and a sign, a point of focus and hope for all the people. That's what this monument was. It's a, it's a signal of hope. The Lord is my banner. The Lord did this for us. And, and in many ways, even Moses standing on that hill with, with the staff of God in his hands was very much like a standard himself. The staff of God would serve as a symbol of God's power. Every time he brought it out, that's exactly what he did. And so thus, when you think about it, Moses standing on that hill, presumably that's where the altar was, he's standing with the, the, the staff of God in his hand as a standard for all of Israel that they would come under and rally behind the Lord. The Lord is our banner. That's what he's, taught. That's what he's saying. That's the heart of it. Do you know someone else one day would be raised up on a hill as a standard. Jesus would be raised up on Golgotha, raised up on a hill, on a cross, like a signal pole, if you will, whose banner reads salvation. And it's the cross of Jesus, I think you would agree, that still stands to this day as a rallying point for all Christians who seek the Father. The cross today is an object of hope for all people. And I wanna show you one more verse in the Bible, then we'll be done. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, there's a prophetic word about the coming Messiah. And listen to what Isaiah says. In that day, the root of Jesse, which is another way of saying the Messiah, will stand as a banner for all peoples. See that? And the nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. So Jesus is our standard. Jesus is our banner. I wonder if Moses fully understood what he was making that day with this altar, giving honor to God and calling it the Lord is my banner. I wonder if he truly understood all the implications all the way through time. For us today, it's Jesus. Jesus is our standard. Jesus is our banner. And we rally to him. And I pray 
that every one of us in this room, everybody watching us online, understands that. My assumption is the majority of us are followers of Jesus, but I would not assume that for everybody. And so today, when we come back to that question, who do you trust? Who do you follow? Good times, bad times, when life doesn't make sense, when we have needs, when, when all of those questions, who do you rally behind? Who do you look to? Who do you follow after? Friends, the answer is very clear in the scriptures. You follow after Jesus. You put your trust, your hope, all your life to him. You surrender to him. That is, my friends, the path forward that God wants every one of us to take. So who do you trust? Who do you follow? Who do you believe in to walk through this crazy world that we find ourselves in today? He wasn't here. Let him hear. Let me pray for you. Lord, we give you great thanks for this day. And I, I thank you, Lord, for preserving these moments in the Bible for us to learn from today. And Lord, my prayer is the same as last week, where the Israelites failed in when it came to trusting you with food and water and other provisions. Lord, may we find great success. Lord, would you give all of us a very keen understanding of the spiritual battle we are in? That, Lord, you are the only way to win. Lord, our enemy is fierce. Oh, but you are stronger. Like we saw last week out in the wilderness, your own wilderness experience, when you told the devil to go away, he had to obey. Lord, I pray that strengthen us too. So Lord, as a church family, I pray you continue to help us hold your word up high to come under your leadership, Lord, in our lives, your lordship over us, Lord. May we, for as long as we have air in our lungs, follow you, believe in you, obey you, and point other people towards you. And Lord, we believe when we do that and we lock arms together, hold each other up, walk down this road, fight these battles together, Lord, we know we'll be victorious. Lord, I pray for anybody in this room that doesn't know you as their Savior. I pray today would be the best day of their lives when they would repent of their sins and choose to follow you with all their heart. Lord, I pray that that would take place today, even in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.